just want to give you a heads up before we get too far into this. We had to do some re-records, and unfortunately, the hardcore lockdown in Minnesota came down. So you're going to notice some pretty drastic shifts in tone between some of the things we're saying. We've, I've tried to smooth them out as best I can, but, you know, we're still experimenting with how to record at a distance. So just be aware of that. Welcome to Unbalanced.mn, a new podcast where we're digging into the right wing in America today. From QAnon to Kyle Rittenhouse to the GOP's recent attempts to invalidate the election, we can see that something's happening and it all seems to be connected, but what is it? Well, over the course of the next dozen or so episodes, we're going to be digging into individual manifestations of this phenomenon and seeing if we can't put a name to it, see if we can't just try to dial down a little bit and figure it out a little bit better. My name's Logan Carroll. I'm an independent journalist based in Minneapolis, Minnesota, specializing in right-wing media and misinformation in the state. I am joined by my co-host. Hi, my name is Miles Bragg. I've been an anti-fascist activist in the Twin Cities for the last five or six years now, pretty concertedly, and a researcher for a few years before that. I've been a media activist for a number of years as well, dating back to around 2010, 2011, in the Occupy days. Yeah, just kind of uh, covering the news from the people's views and um, just trying to understand what the fuck's going on on the right wing as well. Now, I and my roguishly handsome co-host are joined by our producer... Yay. Uh, <laughs> Sam Richards, also independent journalist, interested in surveillance, government accountability, this rising tide of right-wing extremism that we're dealing with and also trying to label here today. You'll hear me chiming in occasionally or maybe laughing at things or, yeah, looking up data as we go, but yeah. I'm here. And we appreciate your help, man. Very much so. Thanks this is a good time here. to point out that we are bootstrapping this shit. Yeah. <laughs> yep, we are coming at you live from my apartment, <laughs> which is, still has a lot of un unpacked boxes in it. Uh, Our microphones are literally hanging from a cat tower, yeah. <laughs> and the cat is just staring at me right now. Yep. Well, that's I wish I could be joking about this, folks, but it is true. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> Should we talk about the news? Yeah, let's talk about it. So, this last month uh, has been crazy. The month of November will, in 2020 will probably be one that is studied. And, and leads well into our first news item, these reoccurring Stop the Steal rallies. There's been frequent sightings of Proud Boys, lots of Proud Boys at these things. Uh Many of them open carrying, some of them I'm sure conceal and carrying. To be able to go to protests 10 years ago, typically the violence that we were worried about back then was frankly from the police, you know, and we were able to Mm -hmm. prepare for that. I've heard people refer to it as like, kind of like going to church, where it's just this big community gathering. But there's like an edge to going to protests now. Yeah, 100%. 
you know, Unite the Right was obviously a turning point. But even yeah. before then, we had the 4th Precinct occupation. Five white supremacists, including Lance Scarcella, came and shot up the place. The tide is definitely turned, and going to a protest, you can pretty much count on skirmishes. Tell me, in your experience being there, how are they different from, like, left-wing protests? The first thing that jumps out to me is that the reason why they consider themselves to be out there is amorphous. It's about stopping the steal. It's about holding the line. Being against socialism. Stopping abortion. Every right-wing grievance that has been manufactured in the last 30 years, it's about stopping the Clintons. It's it's become a big tent. Whereas left-wing groups, they're out there protesting a singular issue. Um... Oh, wow. Fun, fun, fun. Okay, next news item. Halfway through November, the FBI released a report that shows their hate crime data in 2019 was the highest they've seen since 2008. In 2019, 51 people lost their lives to hate crimes, which is a 112% increase from the previous year. The data shows that a total of 7,314 hate crimes were reported last year. Half of those targeted were black. There is something about that that is certainly unique to this country. I kind of put a lot of the blame on Facebook and Telegram and Parler because of the, the massive amount of disinformation that the right wing relies upon. And increasingly, there's space for white supremacists, uh, neo-fascists. In summer of 2016, there were a few rallies here in the Twin Cities that brought out these far-right or alt-right adjacent kind of crowds. Mm -hmm. And one of our goals was to try to divorce the far-right from the mainstream right. Mm -hmm. And we were successful in one of those cases. But I don't think that that is possible anymore. They're accepting the Proud Boys, these far-right three percenters or Oath Keepers. They're bringing in QAnon. What, like six state legislators, incoming state legislators are queuing on? Am I inflating that? In this last election, there was something like 5% of all GOP candidates were either supportive of QAnon or have been endorsed it at one point in the past. It, it's a worrying development. One thing that was particularly stuck in my craw, at least in the last couple of years, is where's the denouncement? Uh, in, I think it was 2017, 2018, uh, Representative Eric Paulson, who is a Republican, skipped a Trump rally to go to a rally in support of DACA recipients. Wow. He was kind of just trying to tailor his message to fit the new demographic that would be voting in that district, I think. But like, maybe I mean, as a whole, it doesn't it doesn't seem to happen. Otherwise, you end up like Jeff Flake, you know, just kind of sidelined. It's probably weird to be, uh, you know, a, a Republican in the party these days. You're facing this this right flank that will ruin you. Miles, what else you got for us? Well, uh, next I have yeah, David Clark, former Milwaukee County Sheriff, announced to a crowd of Trump supporters on November 16th that Wisconsin should have a Proud Boys chapter, quote, because they're the only ones with the courage to get in the face of Black Lives Matter. End quote. The Defend Your Vote rally was organized by the Milwaukee Republican Party, took place at Serb Hall in Milwaukee, and shortly after Clark's announcements, the city of Milwaukee's health department shut down the rally for violating health code, <laughs> social distancing, and mask rules. 
and fined the owners of the Serb Hall $2,000 for those violations. Law enforcement, or at least a former law enforcement official, is out here supporting and endorsing a far-right street gang. I think it's worth saying, because we've talked about them a few times now, the FBI classifies the Proud Boys as an extremist group. Something else that's a little bit more is a relevant piece of information is that David Clark is black. Man, I mean, it's a it's a tough ball of wax, and as a white guy, it's hard for me to speak to those racial dynamics. I mean, the leader of the mm-hmm. Proud Boys is uh, Cuban, right, Enrique Tario? So I believe that gives us 45 minutes worth of audio to trim down to a five-minute news segment. <laughs> <laughs> Now, Miles, we said we're going to be talking about the right wing in America today. You told us a little bit about yourself, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about why you're here today. What got you interested in this? Several years ago, when I was attending Black Lives Matter protests in the Twin Cities, we started having counter demonstrators show up to our protests. Looking back on it now, there was one that was hyper fascinating, and his name was B.C. Johnson. He was a black Confederate. That's what B.C. stood for. He was a black man who had a ginormous pickup truck with four or five giant Confederate flags sticking off the back of it. And he came to counter-protest Black Lives Matter and what he viewed as uh, a left-wing terrorist movement, more or less. That was peacefully shutting down the light rail that afternoon in protest of yet another unarmed black man being killed at that period of time. So this guy really piqued my interest in researching his connections. He was tied into different Oath Keepers and things like that, and uh, Three Percenters, and the militia movement writ large. And so that really kind of got my my brain split wide open, and I just wanted to dive right into it, and so I did. So that that's primarily how I got into this, and um, the last several years I've spent monitoring these guys and sharing whatever information I can with local groups to help keep them safe. I said that I'm an independent journalist. I've really been focusing on the right wing in Minnesota. I came at it from looking at the funding of several right wing news outlets that are based in Minnesota. I had an editor send me this, I don't know, a, little, a bunch of clips of information that there's this Minnesota State Senator sharing likes and tweets about this really weird-ass book called Bronze Age Mindset, which we'll get into in more detail in a later episode, but definitely a fascist manifesto. And it was deeply alarming to me because there's this Minnesota State Senator who's sharing it. There is a political article that said that this book is extremely popular among staffers in the Trump White House. You know, a friend of a friend who I've met a few times who I really love, she's like a beautiful person, is like getting into Q after the unrest following the killing of George Floyd. We had the Proud Boys armed. They are a fascist group armed in the streets 
This is strange. I, I'm mostly hanging out in lefty circles these days, but I do keep contacts with a couple of people who are more centrist, and even they, you know, are asking, like, is fascism the word for this? Is that what we call this? <laughs> I, I gotta say, I I don't think that's the right. I don't think that's the right word. I don't know, man. I think it it probably is. <laughs> it's probably a lot closer to what we're trying to describe than any other word that exists out there. But we've got plenty of time to uh, disagree on the definition. Definitely, the one thing we can agree on is that we're talking about the right wing in America today. Hundred uh, percent. So I want to eventually get into talking about a lot of Proud Boys, QAnon. Uh, Bronze Age Mindset. Bronze Age Mindset, yeah. Mm -hmm. Before I did any of that, I wanted to know, like, just what the fuck does fascism mean? So maybe you could tell me, what does fascism mean? I kind of borrow a lot from Mussolini's definition being that it is the merger between the corporation and the state. I've heard other definitions that liken it to a, a grasp of power in times of economic unrest, typically by a, a militarized force or a hyper-nationalist regime, government, fascism. I mean, it's when imperialism comes home to roost, when our foreign policy starts to manifest itself here. It, it takes on a lot of different shapes and forms. I'm, I'm primarily preoccupied with the street-level fascists, the folks that are organizing far-right paramilitaries out on the streets. That's my operational definition of fascism. You know, you started by talking about Mussolini's definition of fascism. Mm -hmm. when, when Mussolini talked about corporations, what he was talking about was a pseudo-Marxist bureaucracy right. that would, like, run an entire industry. Mm -hmm. If that's the definition of fascism, corporations don't like that don't exist in America. That's true. Yep. So does that mean fascism doesn't exist in America? I, I I don't think so. <laughs> Clearly, I, I think it's a thing here. Something else I heard you say was that you've got a very functional definition that like fucking tangling with actual fascists. Like, there's a point at which the uh, the intellectualism of like don't mean anything, and I hear that. Frankly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but also, in 1944, when there were still like actual fascist governments. George Orwell, who was an anti-fascist and a socialist, uh, so he also wrote an essay about fascism. It will be seen that, as used, the word fascism is almost entirely meaningless. In conversation, of course, it's used even more wildly than in print. I've heard it applied to farmers, shopkeepers, social credit, corporal punishment, fox hunting, bullfighting, the 1922 committee. Stepping outside of the quote for a second, I got no fucking clue what these committees are. The 1941 <laughs> committee, Kipling, Gandhi, Chiang Kai-shek, homosexuality, Priestley's broadcast, youth hostels, astrology, women, dogs, and I do not know what else. So, like, we can sort of update this list for modernity that fascism depending on who you talk to, is the Democratic Party, it's the Republican Party, it's the Catholic Church and atheists. Yeah. It's Ben Shapiro, mm -hmm. and it's when Ben Shapiro gets canceled. <laughs> it's transgender activism, and it's white supremacy. <laughs> like, it's, it's, like, it's like the ultimate political disease, and it can infect 
any movement sure. across the political spectrum. And then there's like, it's like a mental health screener mm-hmm. where there's like this list of qualities. And if you check off nine of the 16, then you have fascism. You've been diagnosed with fascism. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I think part of that is incumbent upon us to tr- in this program to try and really hone in on what that definition is and how it, how it manifests itself in the modern form. And to really kind of also dissect what it isn't the same time in this show like i don't want to get bogged down mm-hmm. in like leafs of paper blowing around in some empty fucking library mm-hmm. you know um i do want to keep it grounded but yeah so back in 2015 vox ran an article called is donald trump a fascist and they spoke to five like world-renowned experts on fascism and they all said no he was not a fascist to begin with i reached out to them and i wanted to see if anything had happened in the last four years that had changed their minds. You know, the whole, this was right after the, the stand back and stand by comment mm-hmm. to a fascist organization. Like, like uh, I want to I wanna play some of that clip for you and then get your opinion on it. But, like, the long story short, I'm just going to say is that, like, no, nothing had changed. <laughs> <laughs> and they are sick of being asked about Donald Trump. Wow. <laughs> The, consen- the, the, the impression I'm getting is that you're all very sick of getting asked about Donald Trump. Right you are. <laughs> this is Stanley Payne. He's a professor of history of Spain and European fascism at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He's been studying and writing about fascism since the 1950s. Let's step back maybe, and you could just define for me what fascism is. Uh, and, and I hold to a, a, a fairly precise historical definition of fascism, which refers to the revolutionary nationalist movements that developed in interwar Europe, developed on the basis of a, a, a certain philosophy of violence, a philosophy of, of radical nationalism, and aimed particularly at the transformation of the nation by means not primarily of a socioeconomic revolution, but by a kind of anthropological revolution uh, to create the new man that is a, a, a new kind of national member or citizen uh, and that made them different from less revolutionary nationalists who were much more neo-traditionalists and were just simply uh, trying to uh, revive or develop elements of the traditional national culture the definition of fascism therefore involves having a, a certain positive uh, moral philosophy of violence, uh, which it makes them different uh, from the extreme left. The extreme left is extreme, very violent, historically, but doesn't have the same kind of moral philosophy of violence. Is fascism exclusively a right-wing phenomenon? No. No. Uh, not exclusively. Uh, it's certainly not a left-wing phenomenon, but not merely right-wing. It wasn't the standard right-wing. For one thing, to be right-wing, you have to be, in some sense, conservative. Fascists were not very conservative. So they they, they were a kind of radical right that even went beyond the standard radical right. Now, fascism is revolutionary. This is a key idea here to understand, because it's one of the points that most scholars agree on. Now, usually we understand fascism as hearkening back to a glorious past of being traditionalist, but 
This is actually what separates fascism from other kinds of conservatism. It's revolutionary. That's not to say that the scholars agree on everything. Yeah, my definition is not quite the same as, as Rogers, uh, uh, because Rogers is so general that everybody uh, can be a fascist. Roger is Roger Griffin, who's been called one of the world's foremost experts on the socio-historical and ideological dynamics of fascism and a compulsive raver. His works include uh, 1995's Fascism, 2004's Fascism, Critical Concepts in Political Science, 2017's Fascism, An Introduction to Comparative Fascist Studies, and the liner notes to the two-CD volume, Return to the Source, Deep Trance and Ritual Beats. <laughs> oh, wait, so that kind no. of raver. I was going to oh, say, yeah. no, no, like, like rave? Yeah. No way. Yeah. Which looks at fascism, and Stanley Payne is a pioneer of that subdiscipline. Yeah, did you mention that you were in contact with me? I did. I did. He um, he spoke pretty highly of you. He did. He he did say that he disagreed with your definition of fascism. Um, but uh, yeah. Well, the funny thing about that is he still claims he disagrees with me. But if you look at his definition, it's actually based on my definition. So, <laughs> uh, but he is also exasperated by. It. Very much so. Um, as much as you, yeah. I believe. It's bloody annoying. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so can I give you my take on this? He's a professor of modern history and a political theorist, and sick of being asked about Donald Trump at Oxford Brooks University, England. If mainstream scholarship has an accepted definition, the closest it has to a universally accepted definition of fascism mm. is this one. Uh the, the single definition is just like highly concentrated apple juice or something, and it needs a lot of water to make it drinkable. But I'll give you the sentence, um, which is that fascism is a political ideology whose mythic core in its various permutations is a palingenetic form of populist ultranationalism. So let's go through that again. Fascism is not just a moral disease or madness or some sort of uh, psychotic state or a nihilistic cult of violence or, you know, a whole other... It's just, it's just another ism. It's like any political ism, like conservatism or ecologism or feminism or liberalism or socialism or communism. Now, every ideology is driven by a myth of an ideal society. So the way it externalizes itself will change massively according to historical context and over time, but the core dream will stay the same, or at least on paper it will stay the same. So the mythic core of fascism is a what drives fascism as a, as a form of politics in many different forms, in many permutations, and that means in many national forms and in also in many organizational and ideological forms. But the common denominator of all of them is that they want the rebirth of the nation. Now, I want to quick tell you about when my son was born. Picture bloody towels piled in the corner, a crying woman and a screaming baby. It took my wife more than a year to physically recover. Before the birth, my son had defecated in the womb. There was feces in the amniotic fluid, and he breathed it in. He wound up in the ICU. Now, rebirth is not simply Trump promising to make America great again. It's not simply Joe Biden promising to clean up the malarkey. 
The fascist myth of rebirth is all blood and shit. It's violent. Physically, emotionally, and spiritually violent, with the promise of something better after the revolution. Mm. Matthew Feldman is a professor of the modern history of ideas at Teesside University in Middlesbrough, England. Hello, professor. Matthew, please, Matthew. please. That's the other guys you talk to that are professor. <laughs> now, Feldman expounded on the revolutionary nature of fascism. The thing that set apart a lot of these, because you could find that on the left or you could find that on the right, but that made totalitarianism and in this case fascism, particularly potent, seductive, but also dangerous, was its attempt, this is in language of the 50s, and we've really only started taking it seriously recently, to create a new person, what some people call an anthropological revolution. So I mean, I think that we're minimizing exactly what a mind change, exactly how totalitarian and ruthless fascism is, even in the thing. The fascist groups that uh, exist in America, how do they play on that mythic past in, in service of building this revolutionary idea of a new person. And so I, another really good question, and, and one that is um, very vexing for the field. <laughs> no, it's true. One answer, I appreciate I think, the humility. <laughs> and, and it might be kind of banal, is that what we put down in paper, which look like very clear-cut distinctions between reactionary and revolutionary, in practice gets really messy, not just between groups, but within individuals who sometimes maybe want to say, screw the whole system, want to burn it all down, and other times they turn around and go, oh, but that might actually mean my parents' house, or whatever. Yeah. Right? So, yes, actually, having just lived through that this summer, yes, that I, I've heard that sentiment expressed, yes. <laughs> I didn't mean to, uh, to probe that, I'm sorry. Uh, but, I, but I also think, I'm going to use a slightly simplistic analogy because fascism is future-facing. And a lot of people want it to be reactionary, want it to be backwards-facing. It is based on certain myths, myths of the blood or the, the oftentimes religious group or an ethno-religious group, and of course, oftentimes the nation as well. But the, the analogy I'd use is that they're doing it in the way that if you and I were going to do a standing jump, we could jump so far. But if we did one of those, like, step, take one step back to take a big jump forward, so that they're carrying with them, according to kind of fascist ideology, the values of the past, the myths of the past that animate them. So it's that stepping back so as to jump further or better or in, in their kind of language more healthily. You know, Stanley Payne was Roger Griffin's mentor. In Griffin was Feldman's. There's this like really clear through line from Payne and his peers to Feldman. Uh, Griffin has called this the liberal humanist approach to fascism studies, and which he contrasts with the Marxist approach. Now, Griffin adamantly disagrees with it, but he has a lot of respect for the Marxist approach. Griffin described what he called the disarray of non-Marxist scholars. Throughout the 40s until well into the 80s, liberals struggled to agree on the basic qualities of fascism. On the other hand, Marxists had it together in the 20s. Now, Griffin rejects them, but, he writes, at least there was a whole raft of coherent Marxist theories of fascism. Now, to get the Marxist approach, he recommended I reach out to David Renton. 
I mean, a whole room full of books about fascism. You really ought to be able to see them. <laughs> I absolutely can. Just two called Hitler, I see. Yeah, it's, it's Ian Kershaw's biography of Hitler. Uh, professor, thanks for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Uh, that's my job. I'm, I'm not a professor. I'm oh. a humble barrister. Payne, Griffin, and Feldman are academics, while Renton is a trial lawyer, a barrister, who represents a lot of working class and poor people. What's funny is that this kind of reflects the history of Marx's scholarship of fascism, uh, which was always grounded in lived experiences, as we say today. For kind of obvious reasons, you know, like if you're living in Italy, Mussolini takes power in 1922. Mm -hmm. uh, through the year of 1922, before 1922, and in the immediate aftermath, people working, trying to work out what's going on, uh -huh. doing the 1920s equivalent to making podcasts. So right from from before the moment which fascism takes power, people are in confrontation with it and trying to understand what this new enemy is. Just in very general terms, like what is the Marxist conception of fascism? Okay, it seems to me there's basically three parts to Marx's definition of fascism. Number one, there are a set of politics out there which are reactionary. They try and make people less equal. They try and divide people. They try and make capitalism more effective. Um, da, da, da. One of the things which Marxism gets is that fascism isn't just simply the most backward-looking, the most reactionary form of politics out there. In an American context, it's not just simply the capitalists. It's not just simply the rich. It's not just simply um, a bunch of people who like being in golf clubs, looking at all these terrible new social media, down with all of them. The second step, and this is kind of more interesting, this again is, is in a sense quite similar in a way to some stuff that Roger Griffin talks about. And again, you know, fascism isn't the only thing which does this, but it's pretty unique in the history of the early 20th century in particular, is that it's much more serious than all those other reactionary, ultra-conservative forms of politics about forming a mass base. So um, it involves millions and millions of people in its activities. It's not just about a leader telling the supporters what to do. It actually, to some extent, grows from the bottom upwards as a movement and is given powers by the leaders. It's given authority and status. And then kind of the third thing, which is, so that's first thing, reaction. Second is mass politics. The third thing, which, like all the people I've, I've read about from the 20s and 30s noticed, was that these different things, the, kind of the reactionary politics and the mass politics, had a certain kind of balance between them. Now, that's kind of the hardest thing to, to convey, but it, it's also like the most important, if I can. So if you want an example, you might talk about, say, um, Chile, uh, the Pinochet coup in Chile in 1973. It comes in with um, what feels like quite a lot of mass involvement. There's strikes by certain groups of workers. But in a year or two, all that goes, and it's just simply... A boring old military dictatorship like the kind of thing we've seen all around the world for hundreds and hundreds of years well, fascism's not like that it keeps on trying to involve the masses of people at the start it's promising them there'll be mass change in their lives you'll see different things then it's what it's promising them is well we can't really deliver that but i tell you what we're going to be absolutely cruel and violent and brutal to all your political opponents all the liberals all the socialists all the communists are going to be jailed then after a bit of time, maybe it does that, maybe it doesn't that. But after another bit of time, all the fascist dictatorships after a period of time settled on what difference you're going to feel is there's going to be wars. We're going to make this country great through war. And those wars include a race war against our opponents because all our opponents are blacks, they're Jews, whatever. 
and they're going to be jailed and ultimately they're going to be killed. So that's the thing about fascism. It's not just that it's reactionary, it's not just that it's mass, but it tries to keep those two things in balance. And that's the thing which then sets it off, sets it off in this trajectory, which leads to wars, genocides, holocausts, etc. You know, the history of your country, there was a pretty prior genocide of some native people. You know, this is part of the story. I'm from I'm from Western South Dakota. I, uh... Brilliant. Then you yes. get where I'm coming from. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing that's interesting about fascism is that it takes that kind of violence, which has been hanging around in the West for a really long time. But for the first time, the only time in the 20th century, it employs it against middle class people who've got the same kind of skin colour as you or me. Yeah. So for me, the thing that you've really got to understand about fascism is the wars and the genocide. You know, fascism's different because it takes all that anger, all that hatred and that and that bitterness and it enables it to take a kind of civil war dynamic going. So therefore, if you're going to have a historical theory of fascism, it seems to me what it's got to do is explain we've got all these norms of what we consider legitimate politics and government. What is it about certain moments that suddenly everyone feels they can flout them? So for me, I don't start with ideas, your word ethno-nationalism, Roger's word, genetic ultranationalism. I don't start with that. I start with the actions. There was one more little thing I did with uh, all these fascism experts. I got them to play a little game where we rated different world leaders, historical world leaders, on a scale of 1 to 10, how fascist they were. People can't see my face at this point. I'm good and I'm grimacing at the prospect of any game. Okay. It's like the pain scale at the hospital. It's uh, <laughs> purely subjective. <laughs> okay, so first off, uh, Adolf Hitler. And why? Adolf Hitler? You need an explanation? Come on. Adolf Hitler is the defining figure of the fascist tradition. So starting easy with Adolf Hitler. A, a 10 out of 10 because ethnic-based destruction or eliminationist forms of racism is the pinnacle of fascism. So start easy with Adolf Hitler. Well, Adolf Hitler was a, a very particular type of fascist because his concept of the nation was based on race. He was obsessed with destroying the Weimar system and creating a radically new revolutionary order based on race. So yes, he was absolute. Hitler's fascism was so radical and, and violent and imperialist and absolutely exterminatory that it was totally unsustainable. In fact, it wasn't sustained. So, it sounds like a 9 or a 10. Okay, so start off easy with Adolf Hitler. 10, uh, because Hitler took all of the fascist characteristics and uh, carried them out to the nth degree with the least compromise and to the most radical extent in conclusion. How about Joseph Stalin? Eight. Uh, Stalin, Stalin's regime has all sorts of similarities with Hitler's. Uh, it's nationalist, it's a dictatorship, it's a one-party state. There's a really big difference though between the two of them. Uh, Stalin comes into to, um, place as a result of what was at its start, a genuine social movement and genuine revolution. And that continues to mean that all sorts of things happen um, through that just would never have happened under Hitler. How about Joseph Stalin? Um, Class-based in its genocidal policy, but also hugely overlapping in the so-called totalitarianism scale. So there are things that, that, in that reading, make Stalin very similar in the style of rule to people like Hitler. So therefore, with the enormous caveat that is coming from the left, and it is left-wing rather than right-wing, 
a six. Okay. Um, we can even be persuaded up to seven if we if we say that caveat takes like it three points itself. Okay. Four points itself. Okay. So what about Joseph Stalin? So there is a theorist of fascism, James Gregor, who created his own alternative theory of fascism, and he saw it not as a form of racism or nationalism, but as a form of what he calls developmental dictatorship. Power was taken over by a dictator in order to modernize the country, yeah? Then actually Stalin can be seen as a sort of lethal Nazi-type dictator driving through modernization. There are affinities, but not in their fascism, but in their totalitarianism. Okay, how about uh, Joseph Stalin? Stalin ranks pretty high. Stalin would be an eight or nine. The, the ultra-communists are more like the fascists than most are. They're just not the same thing as all. He did not believe in the fascist doctrine of violence, but he acted as though he did. Therefore, it's hard to tell the difference. How about Napoleon Bonaparte? Six. Look, Napoleon's more like Stalin than he is like Hitler. There's wars, but there isn't the process of internal uh, race war against your regime's opponents. And it just belongs to a really different historical epoch, because there aren't any machines. How about uh, Napoleon? Napoleon Bonaparte, given his militarism, given his dictatorial characteristics, I guess I'd put that at a four or a five. He's got a couple of elements in in a checklist definition I have all sorts of problems with, but we'll, <laughs> for the, we'll do for the purposes of this game because I don't want to be on the sporting. <laughs> okay. Appreciate the caveat um, and the sportsmanship. How about Napoleon Bonaparte? There is a school of fascist theory called Bonapartism. The way Napoleon Bonaparte was able to put liberal democracy on a back burner and rule on behalf of the bourgeoisie to stop the power of the working class, a sort of precursor or prototype. Okay, how about uh, Napoleon Bonaparte? I would rank him pretty far down. Napoleon is a very peculiar, complex case. Bonapartism became a newism, which was not the revolution, but the transcendence of the revolution. Some people say he was the first modern dictator. Jefferson Davis, the president of the Confederate States of America. I'd say a five. Uh, would only be a two. Hideki Tojo. Uh, there were admiring articles written about Japan by Nazi ideologues who saw them as a sort of honorary Aryan race in the Far East. Tojo would be a six or seven or eight. And Donald Trump. This is a tough hurricane. One of the wettest we've ever seen from the standpoint of water. And it certainly is not good. Right now, today, know nothing about the future, six or seven. I couldn't rank him higher than a two. He's kind of a Jefferson Davis type at most. Uh, Trump, in many ways, has used the government rather less uh, than some of uh, his recent American predecessors. Uh, and in some ways, he has been uh, respectful of the legal structure. So I put him in about the same thing as Jefferson Davis. Trump has been a terrifying carrier of American democracy's deliberalization. But Trump is not Mussolini or Hitler. They were quite bright. They all became megalomaniacs. But to compare them to Trump is, is really an insult to Hitler and Mussolini. Yeah. <laughs> 
shifting production to Thailand and to Vietnam. Thailand and Vietnam. I like their leaders very much. We want every American child to have access to pristine outdoor spaces. When they gaze upon Yosemites, Yosemites, towering sequoias. What so proudly we held at the twilight's last Okay, now that was a lot to take in, a lot to process, and a lot of academic speak. So, Miles, what do you think so far? Where are you at? It's tough to square my experience on the street and with these types of individuals in my own personal experience with the the examples or the definitions laid out by these experts. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see where a lot of them are coming from. I do... I do have some disagreements with some of their definitions, but largely I do find them to be working definitions. I think like some of what you're picking up on too is that it feels very detached from today because it is. Um, we've like really limited what we've been talking about to interwar fascism, uh, which is like you know fascism classic, Italian fascism, German national socialism. That period of fascism covers like the late 19 teens through the end of the Second World War, but fascism underwent like a radical change after the war 100 percent. yeah yeah like i mean before the war is actually like fascism was actually popular before world war ii like in 1927 studebaker even began calling one of its cars the dictator after the war fascism was thoroughly discredited by the jingoism of italy and germany and especially by the holocaust next episode we're going to get into post-war fascism a little bit or neo-fascism from the french new right to bronze age pervert Mm-hmm, goody. Our theme song is Four Faces of Fascism by Dan Carroll. Bumper music this week is Say You Are Mine by One Watt of Love, Indecisions by Robbie Shabby, Never Again by The Cynics, and Modern Man by The Franks. All are available on freemusicarchive.org and licensed under an attribution, non-commercial, share-like Creative Commons license. Well, that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you liked what you hear and wanted to support us, there are two great ways to do that. First, you can follow us at Twitter at unbalanced underscore MN. And if you've got a couple books to throw our way, we'd really appreciate that. You know, this takes a lot of time to put together, and we'd really appreciate the support. If you do, if you got a couple bucks, you can find us at patreon.com slash unbalancedmn. 